0: Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace Conversations with Poets and Other People. Welcome to episode 58 with writer and professor Kate Marvin. For the past 20 years, I have had the enormous good fortune of spending several weeks each summer in Canada and later in different parts of Maine. For the past nine years, I've been going to Scarborough, Maine, a place I have come to deeply love and appreciate. In August, I usually read several poetry books, plan my classes, edit and produce an episode or two of Commonplace, but Kate is the first person I've recorded in Maine. Kate Marvin is the author of three books of poetry, most recently, Oracle. She is a tenured professor at the College of Staten Island and has taught at many other places, including Colby, Columbia, and Stone Coast, in 2009, Kate co-founded the nonprofit organization Vita: Women in Literary Arts, with poet Aaron Belew. Vita, and I’m reading this from their website, is a feminist organization committed to creating transparency around the lack of gender parity in the literary landscape and to amplifying historically marginalized voices, including people of color, writers with disabilities, and queer trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Kate Marvin now lives in Scarborough, Maine, and starting this semester will commute to the college of Staten Island to teach. But Kate and I met years ago, long before Kate lived in Maine and before she became a mother. I was always in awe of Kate and a little afraid of her. She's a fabulous writer, has two m f a s and a Ph.D and with poet Michael Dumanis co-edited a terrific anthology called Legitimate Dangers. Her first book came out a few years before my first book, back when I thought it was likely I would never become a published poet. I saw Kate from time to time at poetry events. When I thought of Kate in those days, the phrase, playing with the big boys, sometimes came to mind. I already had two kids, and did I project a whole lot of stuff onto who I imagined Kate was, fast-talking, stylish, hard-living, successful, brilliant, intellectual. And in some ways, Kate was those things, but in reality, I knew little to nothing about Kate's interior life, what she wanted, who she really was. Kate decided to become a mother and joined the Poet Moms listserv, started by my friend, poet Ariel Greenberg. For a few years, I got to know a new version of Kate, the new mom, Kate, a single mom by choice. It seemed to me that Kate was undergoing an even more radical change than most mothers experience. Part of this was my own shift as I came to know her better, but part of it was a serious feminist awakening on Kate's part, which led to the formation of Vida. Kate and I talk about Vida, about her move to Maine, gardening, teaching, becoming a mother, editing an anthology, and so much more. I'm really grateful in these last days of summer for this conversation for so many reasons, including the way Kate talks about having given too much of herself to teaching and how becoming a mother helped her reorient her labor priorities. I also love how re-listening to this conversation reminded me of my commitment to try to bring poetry, my own creative process, my own contemplative space into the academic year, if that is at all possible. And of course, I'm completely revising the way I teach workshop, again, in part because of my conversations with Dorothy Alaski and Kate Marvin, and in part in response to an article by a commonplace listener. Helen Betya Rubinstein, I'll let you know how it goes. It's been a difficult summer for me, and if I'm honest, a difficult few years. My oldest son is now at college and his transition from high school to gap year to college, his moving away from home and toward adulthood has been painful and fascinating in ways I never could have anticipated. I've also been struggling for over a year, and particularly this summer, with back and hip pain that has not responded to medical treatment and seems to be made worse by stress, which negatively affects my mood because I can't exercise and because it's really depressing to be in pain. This coincided with difficult shifts in my marriage and motherhood, my decision to transition away from seeing my current therapist, who I've seen off and on for more than 20 years, I also turned in the final draft of my new poetry manuscripts, hired two new apprentices, one of whom has already moved on to a terrific new opportunity, so we need to hire someone again. This has been a time of change. I'd like to say that I've embraced these changes with grace and composure, but so far that hasn't been the case. What I can say is that I'm surviving, trying to be a good wife, mom, teacher, literary citizen, friend, national citizen, and human being. I'm trying, but not often succeeding, in taking good care of myself. I'd like to invite all of us to try to take better care of ourselves, to remind ourselves and others not to give too much to the wrong things, to try to allow the work we love most and that sustains us most into our daily lives as much as possible. I mention all this in part because this conversation with Kate reminds me that my narrative, my female story, the story of my life and my body and my relationships is important, is part of commonplace, not at odds with it. And because all of this and more begins to explain why we only posted one episode instead of two in August and are likely to only post one episode in September. We have some great things planned at Commonplace, doing more of what we've been doing, doing new translation things, and other new experiments, and I hope you'll bear with us while we get settled. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation wherever you're listening and find something here that sustains you. To learn more about Kate, about Vita, about the other texts and people we talk about, go to commonpodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter or become a patron of the show, which we would greatly appreciate. Current patrons will get access to all of Kate's drafts, start and finish, of one of her poems, showing her process and edits a copy of her class syllabus, additional recordings of Kate reading some unpublished work, and scans of her favorite Charlotte Mew poems. Patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes Fragment of the Head of a Queen and World's Tallest Disaster, published by Sarah Band Books, Oracle, published by W.W. W. Norton, all by Kate Marvin, and The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka published by WW Norton. Thank you so much to Sarah Band and Norton for their generous donations. Thank you to our patrons, to our listeners. It's enormously gratifying to know that these conversations are entering into people's commutes, classrooms, families, scholarships, retirements, and creative practices. Thank you for letting us into your lives. It's an honor. Here's Kate Marvin. We're sitting in Scarborough, Maine. This is the first time I've recorded a conversation in Scarborough. It's um, super exciting to do it here. There's dogs barking and new sounds that I'm getting used to. Um, and you live here now.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. It still hasn't totally sunk in mm-hmm. that I live in Scarborough, Maine. Sometimes when I exit at Scarborough, I'm like, so this is where I live. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, do you want to say how it happened? It kind of happened gradually in that um, I moved up to Maine to be with my then boyfriend, now husband, and I was planning to take a sabbatical. I was spending the summer with him and bringing my daughter up. He has two sons who live on Peaks Island, so when we first got involved long-distance wise, he was possibly going to move down to New Jersey or New York because I told him that I would never, ever leave my job in New York Mm -hmm. because I'm tenured and no one gives up tenure. You teach at the um... college of Staten Island. Yeah. So basically I was, I had a sabbatical and I was going to go spend the year and we had agreed to move off of Peaks Island and live in Portland proper. And my daughter and I would spend a year in Portland. And then I got a job as a visiting professor at Colby and took a leave of absence and ended up staying in Portland for two years. And then somehow then we ended up buying a house in Scarborough and I just stayed here. And one of the things that, um, I thought maybe I would end up staying at Colby. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that was really attractive about Scarborough was, um, our house is very, very close to the airport. So I can fly to New York to teach.
0: So that's what you do. Do That's what I'm
1: going to do. You haven't done that yet. I'm starting in like three weeks. Wow. Will you stay overnight? I have looked at this from like every single angle possible and like laying awake at nights thinking about how to make this work money wise and time wise so basically i have decided i'm gonna there's a jet blue flight that's like 150 bucks and i'm gonna fly into jfk take the subway ferry the staten island keep a car in staten island spend two nights there a week monday and tuesday I'm renting a room and a house in a neighborhood where I lived previously, so. In Staten Island. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'll be in New York from Monday morning through Wednesday morning mm-hmm. once a week.
0: Wow. Are you looking forward to this? Are you nervous? I am.
1: I'm, I am. I mean, I'm, naturally, what I'm nervous about is what I'd be nervous about if I lived in New York, which is, are the subways going to be favorable to me today? Mm-hmm. You know, how will this travel situation go? The flight is only like 50 minutes, so that's the biggest problem is really going to be getting from JFK to Staten Island. Mm-hmm. And I've already done it a bunch of times, when, you know, so I've, I've kind of tested it out. So I don't think it's going to be that big a deal. I think it might be a little bit more tiring, I expect.
0: Do you teach fall and spring? Yeah. What are you teaching?
1: Um, this fall I'm teaching an advanced poetry workshop and a sophomore literature class in poetry. Mm.
0: Cool. Um, this is the time of year, and it's now I associate it with being in Maine, where for the past few years, I've taught two classes in the fall and no classes in the spring, and then one class in the summer. So I read, like, a ton of books and try to think about, you know, who I want to teach usually. I like to try to teach the new books, but not always. And then I try to like link it with the NYU reading schedule and mm. think about who I want to be on commonplace. And August is always like a very poetry filled month. And there's always this ritual. I don't I mean, you've been teaching for longer than I have. Maybe you don't have this, but it's like, I'm like, wait, how do you teach workshop again? Because I'm teaching uh, an advanced poetry workshop and a graduate workshop. Mhm. And every August, I think I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I've done this a bunch of times. I'm going to take all the things that worked really well and do those and don't do the things that sucked, and then every August I totally reinvent the wheel and come up with some completely different workshop model.
1: See, I don't even think about teaching during the summer. Mm. Um and I don't actually read that much poetry. Mm-hmm. Um because basically I'm writing all summer and I'm writing my own poems and I don't want any sort of like input. I might read some like dead poet, some super dead poet. And that that would be back before I had a child Mm -hmm. when I had a lot more time to read and I really could like read deeply all night. Especially because the past couple of years teaching at Colby, the work was really intense because I really, I had students who had a lot more time to do reading. And so I was able to give them more to read and it was almost like an experiment to see, you know, are they so brilliant that they can take this all in and we can have a higher level of conversation or discourse? And so I taught classes that were like – like I taught a advanced poetry workshop that employed like a lot of poetics, mm. you know, from like Wordsworth, the Coleridge to, you know, Lorca. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always teaching new stuff, but I usually tend to read it during the academic year. And during the summer, I shut down from teaching completely. In fact, I I usually do my syllabus like really right before classes start. Like I'm just now figuring out what what books I'm going to teach. And we don't have our reading series at the College of Staten Island is not something that I'm even thinking about right now. And it's not a graduate program. So really what I'm thinking about is I will not reinvent the wheel, right? And a lot of that has to do with um, sort of knowing that each class is totally different. I have this thing where I really want them to cover. I want to introduce touchstones. Hmm. so that they can see how various contemporary poets are speaking back to the tradition. So there's a book called, like, 250 Poems, which is, like, very cheap and lightweight, and it has, like, it sort of covers all these poems in English from, like, you know, the beginning of time or whatever. And so, you know, we can start off looking at, like, you know, a series of sonnets and then move up through the 20th century, and then I could start to teach them super contemporary like I'll use um please excuse this poem as an example of like you know very contemporary poems are addressing form in really different ways so I kind of I'll use those two books to complement each other and to do something really traditional something really new and then I also will bring in poems that I bring up in conversation so I think I'm going to scale things back and not be working quite as hard on teaching because I think sometimes you can almost overdo it. Totally. You know, because there's stuff that there's just some very basic stuff that like you take for granted that is really important for students to get to know and talk about.
0: Mm -hmm. Did, Did you come up with this sort of model of like sort of starting with the older stuff and then getting to a place where you can talk about how contemporary poets talk back to the older poets, because that's a process that you personally engage in as a writer?
1: Well, there's two things. First of all, as an undergrad, I went to a super small college called Marlboro, and you can kind of design your own curriculum. So my um, introduction to poetry was really um, eccentric, in that I would be studying romantic poetry, but then contemporary American women poets, because I was piecing it together myself. I really had no sense of like the timeline for things, and for schools and how they developed. And so it took me a really long time for sort of things to cohere for me and, I left college without really knowing the modernists. And to me, that was a, that was a very significant piece of information that I needed in order to understand all these poets I was reading really closely, which were contemporary American women poets. So how could I understand what they were in conversation with if I hadn't been given this huge piece? And, and that for a long time, I was really angry about that. But then I went to graduate school pretty quickly after undergrad. I only took like a year off. And I immersed myself in those poets through teaching and through taking classes And then by the time I was in my PhD program, everything started to really come together. So I actually see it as kind of a duty Mm -hmm. to um, expose my students to these things so that they know what people are talking about. They understand these illusions. Also, I think they're like amazing poems and they're so fun to talk about. It's amazing to see how a poet like John Donne is writing about sex in a way that's Very stomach turning, right? So I think it's really delightful to do that. And also because like so students will have expectations about poetry that it should rhyme or something like that. So you look at like, you know, these older examples. But also I'm really interested and I like I mean, one of the things I love literature so much is how authors communicate to each other via literature over time. Like that whole conversation to me is basically I think the closest thing I know to religion or to God. And I'm not a God person. I don't believe in God but like that to me is something I totally believe in it's like that conversation between dead authors and living authors just between authors and that's I think so fascinating you know so um so if teaching um I really love to teach Josh Bell's poem Zombie Sunday Had We But World Enough in Time in conversation with Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress because they're both such powerful poems and they're both completely perverse so that's something that's like, you know, I think that that also shows younger writers that whatever they're saying, they might not think what they're saying is relevant, but it's totally relevant. And their language is, their vernacular is really interesting. What they pull from is really interesting. And also that you can have a sense of humor.
0: I know that Plath uh, was an important author to you before Plath had her second coming, mm-hmm. um, Who are the other uh, dead authors who you feel like your work is really in conversation with? Or like, if I was going to teach a poem from Oracle, who would I pair it with? Or, you know, that would be really fun.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's funny that I can't um, sort of, I actually am probably going to be slightly stumped when I think about Oracle. Because I don't know how attached it is to... Of course, it's totally attached to the literary tradition. but um, Well, it doesn't have to be about Oracle in particular. I guess the question really is... Well, I love Paul Solon. Are... Ceylon.
0: Ceylon, uh-huh. Yeah, I
1: haven't read him in a really long time, but that's someone who who definitely I think about a lot. I really love um Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely see my stuff, you know, in dialogue with him. I mean, Elliot, of course. Do you feel... Is it only one way? Do dead people really
0: stay dead? I guess I'm asking... It's not a conversation unless it's
1: coming from both sides, so um well, I'm, let me talk about something that I'm thinking about at this very moment. Um, and I hadn't read this thing in ages, but I'm thinking about Kafka and his um letter to his father, and I think about the metamorphosis, which I think I teach like once a year, just to make sure that students have read it because I think it's a really important thing to have experience, And besides, I love it. There's that moment when Gregor's father like throws the apple at him and it gets lodged in his back and, and he's trying to get back into his room and a door slams on his abdomen. And it's so sad. Like that scene always completely breaks my heart. My father died last October. And I think about letter to my father because it really speaks to my resentment toward my own father. And it's really long. His letter to his father It's really long. And it just enumerates why he's afraid of his father, why he doesn't like his father. I feel really close to that text, even if I haven't looked at it for a long time. I don't know where I'm going with that. But that's something that, like, I hadn't read it for um, many years. I think I taught it maybe almost 20 years ago. But I'm kind of like, I'm like, oh, I really need to go back to that and go back into that. Because that's something that's just sort of, like, held up for me over a period of time.
0: You know, I saw, I was really enjoying looking back at some print interviews that you've done. And you talked about Oracle, which is your most recent book. As being sort of part of a triptych and you said that your first book um, the world's tallest disaster was about your 20s and about unrequited love Um, and that your second book you talked about as being um, meaner and about marriage divorce self-destruction stalled attempts at rebirth and Oracle you wrote it after your daughter was born and you said it was sort of about motherhood aging and death and then when the interviewer said well what are you working on now you sort of were like, I don't really know, we'll see. And so part of me is wondering, um, your father died last October and you're going back to Kafka and his text of sort of
1: addressing his father. Do you think you're, are, are you already ha- working yeah. on Yeah, I'm working about- on, I'm writing like a prose thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like, that, and that's one reason why I actually need to provide, I, I need to write about my childhood. And also because I've been in conversation with my mother somewhat, I've, and I've actually been going to a therapist about it, and I've just been trying to figure out just like untangle like the earlier part of my life. I'm also trying, I think, in general to be less defensive or less self-conscious. Like I think about interviews I did. I'm like, I was so defensive and so self-conscious and so tightly wound, and I don't really think that there's, you know, I don't want to really be that way. I'm kind of like trying to be process versus product mm. at this point in my life. And so... What was the the question? Is like is like what What am I doing? Well, okay, I did. Okay, I had um, a friend solicit a poem for me for a British magazine, and the idea was that you took a poet who was sort of not copyrighted, and so they could reprint a poem. I think the person had to be dead, and then you write a poem that's in conversation with theirs or imitates Mm -hmm. theirs. So I did Charlotte Mew, the Quiet House. So Charlotte Mew is this amazing um sort of hardy esque British poet from the early twentieth century who's very funny to read about. I recommend you check her out because she was just very morbid, prickly woman who actually killed herself by drinking Lysol. Whoa. Yeah. So she and her poems are great. So I thought about her and how a lot a lot of people don't know much about her. She writes these sort of persona poems that are they're dramatic monologues, but they're also She had many relatives, siblings, who were mentally ill and were incarcerated, and she and her sister decided to not reproduce because of this illness in their family. And so she writes about family a lot, and so I wrote a very, what was like a really unusually personal poem about my parents and about my father, and it was imitating Muse, so it was long and narrative, which I usually find sort of... um, Unattractive, mm-hmm. right? It's not something I really go for in my own poems, you know. It would be like, like I needlepoint, I don't knit. So I did that, and it, and it turned out to be a really weird and personal poem. But I published it. The thing was, is my dad was still alive, and it I knew it was going to be published in a print journal in Britain, so that my mother wouldn't see it or my father wouldn't see it. And, and though, really, I shouldn't be concerned because it's not like they really even would read it. Do you know what I'm saying? In fact. One thing they said in the, in the introduction I was reading to Kafka was he, like, dedicated this book to his father very pointedly. And then, it, then his father put it down on his bedside table and didn't pick it up for two years and just never read it. What? Totally, totally. And that's, like, you know, it's hilarious. So I think that I'm more interested in right now what I've been writing. Um, I've been sort of just writing really one poem a week. And, um, and I write a lot about my daughter. And I have written a bunch about my father dying and sort of childhood stuff, but I'm really not like, um, I'm kind of just letting the poems like go where they will or go where they may. And I'm not trying to sort of have some kind of idea. I kind of trust the poems to do what they're going to do. I don't see them really as a set of that sort of triptych. But then again, maybe they're part four. Who knows? Mm -hmm.
0: So since you write sort of seasonally, you know, like more intensively in the summer and not very much during the teaching semesters, I'm assuming? I'm hoping to change that, yeah. Okay. As you get to the summer... um, It's glorious. uh, Yeah. And so I'm curious about whether you prepare for that in some way. Like, do you decide that you're going to read certain things in order to put yourself in the place of new poems do you I don't have time to think about
1: that stuff okay like my life is like first of all you know I was a single mom for a really long time and I was always commuting and so you know it's like it's like I just and now I have a larger family so I don't have the time or even like the intentionality I would rather sort of read stuff as it comes Mm -hmm. and by the end of the semester it's literally like the end of the semester spits me out it's like I land I get washed up on a beach and then I'm able to finally do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So what I do to prepare is put my daughter in camp. Uh-huh. That's basically I get childcare, I, and then I set up a schedule, or I have an office or a place to go. Lately, I've been going to Scarborough Public Library.
0: I love the Scarborough Public yeah,
1: Library. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll see you there one of these days. I find it really—it's really—I hate working in coffee shops because I spend the whole time looking around at other people and hating them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really a great person to be around while I'm working. Like, um, I'm not a harmonious working person. Like, I get very itchy and angry. Mm -hmm. So it's a coffee shop is not a good setting for me unless I'm aiming to finish something, like a response to a student or something like that. And the idea is I have to get out of there unless I can't leave, unless I finish what I'm doing. So mainly it's just setting aside the time um and getting my daughter in camp which is of course expensive and my daughter like your son does not like every single camp so sometimes you you sign up for a camp and the, and all you hear are complaints about the camp right i
0: mean it's it's super interesting at least to me the summer is is a vexed and complicated time for me because on the one hand um not exactly the same as it is for you First of all, because I don't teach in the spring or I haven't been. But um, I think of the summer as a time where I'm going to get my real work done, Mm -hmm. namely my writing. And meanwhile, everyone else is like, oh, you're so lucky you have the summer off. I haven't been to
1: the beach yet this summer. Okay. I mean, to give you an idea of I really don't care about the beach. Mm -hmm. I really don't care about relaxing. Like, I mean, I want to sleep. I do basically, but my schedule this summer has been like drop kid off a camp, exercise. Then I've been gardening a lot. But the gardening, you might think, is relaxing, but it's not at all. Because my um, entire yard, which is large, which we bought the house in October, so I knew nothing about gardening. I started about two or three months ago. So I've been completely, like, um, extending my flower beds Mm -hmm. and sort of reconfiguring all my plants for the entire yard and growing vegetables. So I've gotten completely obsessive about this, and I will spend – I mean, yesterday I maybe spent three hours, like, um, I dug a whole new, I extended a whole bed because I'm going to do, like, a shade garden on my side. This is very much like a poem because I'm, like, I'm, like, reading all this stuff. I'm reading all these books on perennials and planting and gardening, and I'm also in conversation with these people at Esther Brooks Nursery. Have you been there? It's amazing.
0: Because I don't, I I told you, I don't know anything about gardening or home upkeep or anything. I'm, you know, I lived in New York my whole life. Well,
1: this is very new to me and it's it's really scary because, first of all, it's very difficult to absorb all the information. There's a lot of, like, Latin names for flowers I never get right. I can't pronounce. Do you need to get those right? Well, in conversation with people, if you're talking to people who know what they're talking about and if you're reading books about flowers, it helps because, like, what are you going to do when they discuss a group of flowers? Like, look them up every single time? You know, it's sort of your typical major research project with all of its pitfalls. Like, first, I completely believed my mother, everything she said about gardening. And it turned out that my mother was projecting herself onto me. So, my mother, who is in her late 70s, thought that I needed all these sort of um, she thought I needed a, a bench to kneel on while I was gardening. When, in fact, I don't need a bench because my knees aren't bad because I'm not in my mid-70s. Like, she was like, you need a special little wheelbarrow to cart around, like, dirt. And it's like, I don't need that. Like, and actually, I don't like the garden with gloves. She was like, you need gloves. I don't like gardening gloves. So so then, and then my mother was like, just wait and see what comes up in the yard. So there were things that I was essentially fostering that were weeds. Uh-huh. And I didn't know what they were. And I was almost like, it was like I was forbidden to do anything about these things. And I felt like I was forbidden to change anything in my yard because it was all, my mother's very, she's always saying, well, I'll wait and see. She's really cautious. I'm not a cautious person. Like, I'm, I'm an impulsive person. So finally, I spoke to this guy, Esther Brooks, and he was just like, what are you even doing? He was, um, <laughs> and so he, he took me under his wing, and uh, his name is Jim. And basically, there were these really hideous rocks lining these flower beds, and I was just like, well, they're old, and... You know, they come with the house, and I was kind of trying to respect them. But I was like, I kind of think they're tacky. And I showed him a picture. He was just like, well, that's because they are. <laughs> and so he was like, get rid of those. He's like, you, you know, why, why do you even have that particular bed? Don't you, you do you want to mow around that? Just get rid of that. He's like, just dig those up. Throw those away. Like, I would be like, I hate daylilies. He's like, yeah, I hate daylilies too. <laughs> just toss them in a ditch. Uh-huh. So, and once you get these people to actually talk about what they like and don't like, like they have really strong preferences, just like with writing, like they know what works aesthetically, mm-hmm. right? And what's going on. So you can kind of create these visions with these people and they, they'll go, you can sort of do your research and then they, you can, then they'll help you figure out what's right for certain parts of your garden. So that's what I've been spending a ton of my summer focused on is my yard. And I'm almost done because I want to get everything sort of set before by September because next year all these perennials will start to grow and it will actually really really be a garden
0: I'm I'm imagining your next book as like a combination of the wild iris and Mm -hmm. all
1: like uh daddy poems oh god god forbid (laughs) I would hate for it to be anything like either of those Uh two people because for one thing It's way more, like, um, shapeless than any Plath or or Glick would ever be, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's definitely – I mean, I need to go through all my poems and completely whip them into shape because – Right now I've been generating poems and I don't have time to sort of revise them and prune them and shape them, which used to be a complete obsession of mine was just the shaping of a poem. And, you know, that's really more about affect in a lot of ways. And I'm a, a more suspicious of affect nowadays because I see a lot of people creating these perfect and precise poems that don't really have a whole lot inside them. Even if their topic is really, really, you know, perilous and, and important, sometimes the language isn't doing the work or the line will be really carrying the language. And so that's sort of like some of my frustration with the way form is sometimes exercised and that it's almost precious. And I feel like kind of like, okay, book number four, I can just like let it all hang out. Uh-huh. Anyway, at this point, who knows who's even reading these things? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I I am.
0: <laughs> um, so let me well, that's ask you, nice. let me ask you a question about Oracle. One question, which is completely related to this, I think, is I was struck by the fact that almost every single poem in Oracle has a regular stanza- Pattern mm-hmm. um, and it varies. It's not that the whole poem, you know, sometimes it's tercets, sometimes it's quatrains, and and so I I, I was just interested I in some that. I have some
1: long poems that yes, don't have stanza breaks in a there, few, and the prose poems, yes.
0: Um, but it was interesting because I don't feel that the content is it doesn't feel controlled or controlling. But I was just interested in at what point in the process it became important to you to have regular stanza patterns for those poems? Was it early on? Was it late? You know, and and, and it seemed, it sounds like maybe you're moving away from that.
1: I think that um, generally, you know, and I think it, it depends on what kind of writer you are. I know that Erin Ballou, she will be like in one poem and she can't start another poem until she's done with that poem. And she's thinking very much about its line its shape when she's writing it. And you can tell, actually, when you read her poems, I mean, they're, they sort of sustain a moment in a way that, you know, you can. if you think about it, you can tell that she's been inside that poem for a really long time. And I'm very impressed with that. Rick Barrett is also like that, in that he goes from one line to the next. And the thing is, is I, and I think, you know, you do what works best for you. I don't think there's any better or worse way. But, but I, you don't do what works best for your mother. You try not to. Or you find Jim. I mean, I wouldn't do anything if I did like what my, you know, I I would just sit here and worry about what to do next.
0: I mean, I'm just keep sitting here. I I know I just interrupted you and I really want to hear the end of it, of what you're saying. But I'm like sitting here trying to think about like what in my life and what in my poems is the equivalent of like daylilies, the ugly rocks that I feel like I'm supposed to respect. And also this advice of like, you know, wait for it to come up. And then who is my Jim who's
1: going to say to me, You don't like daylilies. You've never liked them. Get rid of them. It's so psychological. It's almost irritating. I mean, that's the thing with gardening, it really is like this hugely aesthetic and psychological exercise. And it's just just fascinating. I'm telling you, like, I did not – I had a backyard in Staten Island that I ignored to the extent that there was this, like, large rope structure up in the back trees that some freaky people who lived there before put up there. And I – paid someone to remove it. And I was so frustrated that they hadn't removed. I was complaining about it to my neighbor. And he was like, they removed it Mm -hmm. because I hadn't looked in my backyard for that long because (laughs) I didn't even look at my backyard. I didn't Uh care. And so now like this yard is just seriously, like I'm so obsessed with it that I have become the most boring person on earth, but like I'm obsessed with it. So the stanza patterns, Oh yeah. yeah are yeah. they more like? Oh, are they the, the garden stones? is so much like the stanza pattern. Okay, yeah.
0: But or they or are they helping you? Like, okay. So there's some things in gardens where they help like, me. You can't plant something in the wrong place and have it thrive. Like there are some formal decisions that one needs to make um, in order to That's have very true. the piece thrive. But then there are some formal decisions, you know, or maybe what was the word you used? You said, oh, there's some decisions that are sort of more about affect. Um, that maybe are more like the stones that don't need to be there. They're not creating any structural support. Right. And and they're not helping the garden. So I guess I'm wondering, like, if we're going to impose this.
1: (laughs) No, I tend to digress really horribly. But back to the whole stanza thing is that I really love using stanzas and working with the line when I'm revising. But when I draft... I sometimes will write in stanzas or whatever, but sometimes I do. But I, generally, if I'm just sort of writing, like I'm just writing, because a lot of times I like to write without having any idea of where I'm going, of just using a title, because that way I surprise myself and I don't know where I'm going to end up. And, um, and also I'll be more likely to say something that I might have otherwise been self-conscious about and I really want to say the things that I shouldn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I write a giant, messy, huge thing. Does it have
0: line breaks usually, or it's well? It has line breaks, absolutely. Like because you know, I always think about the
1: line break, but it's but it's it's a dense long thing. And in fact, I have a writers group here, and like when I bring my poems in to them. The poems usually look like that because they're really rough. And then, so when I go back in, I was saying I need to whip my poems into shape. I will be going back in. I will be imposing stanzas and couplets, and I will be really reconsidering the line breaks and making the poems just like making them more taut, making them tighter. The thing is, is that the the poems in Oracle are just inherently messier because of the way that they were written. And I don't think my poems are ever going to go back to. I mean, I had I sort of lived this like this very sort of pure life before I had a kid, where all I did. You know, besides being involved in various harrowing relationships, you know, on the side, was read and write poetry. That was the ultimate thing I was focused on. It was all I thought about. And then life, you know, came in and I didn't have the time to do that. And my poems got a lot messier. And they were also, there were more poems that were written just because I wanted to write the poem. Mm-hmm. Not because it was a project, but it was because I, I thought something was funny or I came up with a title and I wanted to express myself. So the poems just got messier and then I realized they were a lot funnier and they were a lot different and that, that was a temperament of the book as it was moving forward and I had to go with that. So they're definitely, you know, they have fleas. Yeah. They're a shaggier.
0: Um, I want to ask you a qu- another question about Oracle and I want to phrase it in a way that's both like just straightforward, but hopefully not offending you.
1: I'm not that easy to offend unless you're a, a rude cashier that's that like <laughs> sends me over the edge. Okay. So I don't think I'm a rude
0: cashier. <laughs> okay, so I was really interested when I was reading Oracle in the ways in which the poems formally do seem a little bit messier, even though they're in regular stanza patterns. They don't feel so controlled. Um, they do feel urgent in a different way than the poems from your first two books. But there's also something you know that I see as a return to girlhood or you know about your own teenage years and I was wondering whether part of that was being the mother of a daughter and like re-entering and I think this happens to most parents like I was talking to Nick Flynn about this Mm -hmm. like the way in which you when you are with your child especially a younger child but I but it still happens to me with my 19 and 17 year old like I relive that part of my life. And so I'm like, I've lived it twice in a way that I don't think the lots of writers go back to their childhood. But I do think there's something psychically slightly different about re-entering the material of one's childhood when you are actually the parent of a child that age. So specifically the question is about, you know, whether that's part of what was happening when you were writing Oracle. But then I really want to ask you a question about motherhood, which is, I feel like, I mean, motherhood changed my whole life, Mm -hmm. and I don't know anyone who isn't changed by motherhood, but I think that motherhood maybe changed you more than most people, and I wanted to ask you about that.
1: Yeah, I actually would really like to talk about that. So, okay, the poems in Oracle, I don't think they go into, like, my childhood. I actually think this next book will actually maybe have some poems about my childhood, Things with Oracle is that there's a number of poems that are about high school. And I never wanted to write about high school, but then I visited this high school in China and I was in the bathroom and I was like, oh my God, Like high school is just this horrible thing that happens to all of us. And I thought about high school as a metaphor and high school as a location and sort of a prison through which to view a bunch of perceptions and arguments. And I took my high school experience, which, and it's a really slanted one in this book, it just looks at, it's it's, it's autobiographical to some extent. And it looks at sort of, like, I hope that it's sort of a shadow set of stories or um, statements that will help the reader understand where the speaker is in the poems or in the present. Because the person who's speaking these poems is definitely, it's moving on into sort of, you know, the invisible age is obviously like mourning the death of someone. You know, there's all kinds of crap going on. So I'm hoping that that will help understand sort of her underpinnings. And also, the whole book is about... um Violence against women, yeah. and about rape, mm-hmm. and and then of course you know I, a friend of mine I found out that a friend of mine had killed herself. I found out in two thousand five, and she died on nine eleven. She shot herself in the head. But she was my best friend in high school, and we had a falling out. And she was basically the person who introduced me to smoking and drinking and guys. Like she completely brought me into. My life filled with vices that was far more interesting when I was like fifteen or sixteen. So anyway, so she, but she's she's sort of this, you know. Also, I hate her because we had a falling out, and I hate her. Mm-hmm. So there was like she just kept on sort of coming up as this figure who's sympathetic and maybe not so sympathetic. And so that, and you know, she was just she was a huge part of my high school experience. And so and it was just also really interesting to take to take that experience, which I think is so unpoetic, and put it in poetry, and you know, and to have the sort of the perspective of, of I was so apathetic in high school and I was just so miserable but so that was that became sort of a bunch of sort of shards that I wanted to sort of you know put in the book and I just kept and I also just kept writing the poems and thinking about what it also meant to grow up as a as a woman do you want to read one of the high school poems sure okay um high school is a picture of Dorian Gray this is a quote from the picture of Dorian Gray can they feel I wonder these silent white people we call the dead you are never not what you were and queer it is to see your own cruelty rise in a mirror. It's not that masks themselves are lies. Rather, our masks are us, therefore uniform. Fear us. In high school, my head drops off the stalk of my wilting neck, lets its dolorous flower fall to rest a cheek on the merciful cool of a schoolroom desk. I wake having no idea what century I'm in, having dreamt myself queen a leaf amid quailing sounds released inside dungeons. It's homeroom. He walks in, refusing to recognize me. That's how, ugly I'm considered. the first boy I ever kissed says he was too drunk to remember anything. There is a factory that produces heads like his. One day I'll hear he died from an overdose, and not feel bad. Like him, I won't feel anything. It's long been my complaint, having a body. So what if I could remake the brain that conducted the lips that proffered to me my very first kiss? Would it be a reenactment or a revisit? Want to date rape? We'd roll to fro across the floor of that treehouse bombed on three different kinds of liquor. Or reframe our fix, make our marriage prearranged, conduct an insistence that each mouth return to the other mouth for a second kiss? not having to know, waking up to my childhood bedroom, bubbling up, best friend weeping envious in the bed beside me, nor thinking, such strange windows. Should I now fashion that dead boy's head so it might whisper back to me a compliment? But I was just legs and nothing else. You really should go out sometime instead of staying inside, reading books. You're pretty. You're pretty. In that life, I'd become an alcoholic. In another life, I'd be much happier as an office machine. Awesome. So, you know, in some ways, I worry that this poem is a little coded because um, it's sort of explicitly about. The first time I ever got drunk, which was the first time I ever kissed a guy, mm. which was a real eye-opener for me in many ways, as it was not the most pleasant thing. But I was also very excited because um, I had never been like considered desirable you know, as, as a female person. I was a late bloomer, so I really wasn't that developed. And I had this best friend who was totally like, bodacious, and all the guys loved her, and she was very, very popular. And this guy, I was 15, he chose me over her. And so this was a huge fracture. This is a friend who dies later, right? This is a, was a huge fracture in our relationship and like a transition sort of in my... Also the introduction to alcohol, mm-hmm. which um is, you know, always like comes up in my books repeatedly, you know? And so it's interesting because, you know, in my life, this person did actually decide that he was never going to acknowledge that he had made out with me. Mm-hmm. And it was the first person I ever kissed. And so... How old were you? 15. So that was like a really big deal to me when I was a kid. And I was also like just falling asleep in school and I hated school. And I remember this guy came in the homeroom or came he was in my English class. And I just think, Jesus fucking Christ. This guy, he has to be in this class. And I just, I just ignored him too. Mm. You know what I mean? It was sort of like, and I feel like there's a lot of that of sort of really shit male behavior that occurs. And because they're not going to acknowledge it, you're just like, well, okay, I guess I'll just move on too, dude. I just always kind of like, can't help but chuckle to myself literally in the moment of just like you know get a load of this shit
0: i mean alcohol comes up many times in
1: this book and in your previous books
0: um also the question of whether uh, the speaker is pretty, how pretty? Yeah, pretty, yeah, like, yeah. Does she herself think she's pretty? Do other people think she's pretty? Prettiness versus ugliness. Also, to some extent, prettiness versus beauty.
1: Like, um, oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You now know, that you're,
1: you mentioned that. I see. Yeah, like in poem for an awful girl. Yeah, yeah. there's a jealousy. Yeah, um,
0: and then I think you know the other things that I notice the difference between unkindness, meanness, and harm. Um, like the difference between violence and unkindness, which sometimes functions as a defense against Mm -hmm. violence, and other times is a kind of violence. So those those Mm -hmm. things I see coming up over and over again. And I see all of those in this poem. I mean, it's so interesting that you earlier talked about your life before your daughter as being pure. Um, because it also was,
1: <laughs> it's also purely toxic, right? right. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. I
0: mean, and I guess part of me is wondering, like, okay, so how's it going with the smoking and the drinking and the? Yeah, that's you know... a really
1: good question. Well, you know, it's funny because I just want to sort of preface that before I forget it, but I, I before I forget to say that I think that my life, um, and I knew this when I decided to have a child, because as you know, I decided to have a baby using a sperm donor. I had to go through IVF because I. Couldn't get pregnant otherwise. So it was this very intentional process where it wasn't like, oh, we'll just have sex and maybe I'll get pregnant and then we'll make a decision. Um, but it was more, um, "I am I going to do this? And, if I, and I knew that I would be completely altering my life in a way because all I did was stay up all night reading poems and then go to, I mean, I really, I had this weird sort of monastic life, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed tremendously. Although and- it wasn't really
0: monastic in the sense that you were also focused on romantic and sexual yeah but I was I was spent but a lot yes. of time alone yeah, yeah I mean I mean in the alone sense right I'm sure you know there's very that. focused on being an artist being a poet yeah yes exactly exactly
1: so the thing is is I knew that that would be like completely that that would never even exist and I so my experience after I had my child was literally like um leaving myself of like I'm sorry but I can't love you anymore mm. I can't I can't love you the way you want me to love you anymore because I have to take care of this child and I, I love this child. So it was sort of, you know, the banishment of narcissism, mm-hmm. you know, and that to me was a really crucial transition in starting to live in the moment, not live in the past, not live inside poems, not drink as much, sure. Well, I couldn't drink and smoke while pregnant, obviously, you know, so hello, sobriety. But, um, but in terms of having a child and now that my daughter was nine... I don't drink anymore. That's a pretty recent th- development. Mm-hmm. But at all, like, it feels. It like it, I don't it, drink anymore at all. Uh-huh. But it feels like an eternity because it's so fucking boring. <laughs> but um, but you know, I have a different writing schedule now. Like I, I, I mean, I just nowadays I wake up early and I actually really would just want to get to sleep around ten thirty or eleven because I'm tired. Before I would have like had my drinks and you know smoked my cigarettes um, up until four in the morning, or three and just read and written all night and it would have been totally awesome because I would get a lot done. I mean, I would get a lot of writing done in the middle of the night, but I can't do that anymore because I have a kid. And also because there's like, you know, I'm actually sewn into the rest of the world. I have a spouse and, you know, I I just, I can't exist that way. And also it's not terribly interesting, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you, I, this is from a
0: previous interview that you did, right? So you said, um, I dislike waking before noon. When I wake reluctantly, I tend to the needs of my pets, two cats, one dog. If it's a teaching day, I drive to the College of Staten Island. This involves navigating a torturously congested road. My day does not truly begin until I have acquired and consumed a 32-ounce big gulp of Diet Coke from 7-Eleven. It's the big gulp that's important, not 7-Eleven, where I find the employees rather disagreeable. Yes, unpleasant cashiers. That's a triggering (laughs) thing for me. Because I wake up so late, my day is often short. I'm much more active in the evenings, during which I alternately read, write, needlepoint smoke, email, and despair over my decision last June to put my television and DVD player out on the street because I wasn't getting enough work done. I go to bed by 3 or 4 a.m. So obviously that is very That's, different. Yeah. Than well, first your life of all, now. I
1: can't. You know, I, I I would like to say that I don't smoke anymore, but I do. I still smoke like outside. My husband smokes, and in fact, the quitting drinking part was an effort to quit smoking because we were like, there's no way we can quit smoking if we're still drinking, and so we both decided to we quit drinking and smoking at the same time. Mm. And I mean, can you imagine two volatile people sharing a house, quitting drinking and smoking at the same time? But we did, and then it's it's been the drinking that we've stayed away from, and the smoking. Um, is something that he's 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 a really addicted smoker. I am not, but I actually almost like cigarettes more than I ever did. But it's, it's kind of because they're a respite. And honestly, there's nothing better than sitting around, sitting out, doing some gardening and just smoking a cigarette by yourself and looking around at, at your garden and being like, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do. But yes, yeah, so it's totally different. I don't I don't drink diet soda anymore. You know, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that one of the things I think I wanted to point out about that. In that interview, it was that I live a boring ass life. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that a lot of people are sort of like, oh, some people who are writers present their lives as exciting. But I actually don't really want to have a very, very interesting life. Like I, you know, like this is enough excitement for the week doing this interview with you. You know what I'm saying? I've been For like me too. on Wednesday, the interview. I'll be talking to her and I was thinking about I was like, you know, it's so funny cuz I saw Rachel the other night. I went out to dinner with a friend and that was also very disruptive cuz I had to go leave the house. But I was like, I'm so happy Rachel's here. I should have we should be hanging out. I was like, nah, we don't need to hang out. It's just like knowing she's here is cool.
0: <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's super interesting. I mean, I have so much so many things to say, but we're going to come back to motherhood. Sure. All of it is related. But I was thinking, this isn't a question. <laughs> I was thinking when I was reading your book, and and even more so when I was reading these interviews, these previous interviews with you, I kept having the thought, and it wasn't like an insecure middle school, high school girl thought. It was like more just like a really like, huh, I thought, I think Kate might hate my work only in the sense that like there were a lot of things that you said in interviews, like I don't like work like this and I don't like work like this and I don't like work like this. And I was like, wait, that's my work. I don't care. You know, I mean, that's kind of interesting to me. I'd kind of love to have someone on commonplace who was like, indeed, I do hate your work and let me tell you why. Um, Like that's actually okay with me and interesting, but we have a lot in common or at least I think we do temperamentally. Like I relate completely to you know, I would like to start gardening. I would like to start all these new yeah, things. Yeah, you would and dig it. I would love it, right? But I would I would have to read a million books about it. I would have to, you know, talk to this Interview person. Interview everybody and that, you know. And, yeah, exactly. And this and this and this and do this and this and this and this. And what's interesting to me, I think, is that like the forms of our poems and some of the other ways in which we present ourselves, our work and our bodies and our whatever to the world seems different on the surface but is a reaction to the same kinds of like anxieties need to control things need to do the research I don't think that is an anxiety
1: just just a right No, I'm I'm
0: (laughs) you know what I mean I mean it just strikes me that like you chose to make what is the most disruptive decision of all time to have a child um on your own but, but you know, you also... that's also,
1: there's also, you know, I had been a total, like I had given myself over to my job so completely to my job as a professor. And honestly, I was just like, fuck you, I'm going to have a baby. You know, I felt like I'd been giving myself over, and this is personal, you know, poetry I think is something that really gives back. And I think that's why I was able to invest so many years in it, really without regret, even though maybe it wasn't like the best thing for me as in terms of becoming a mature human being. I definitely, like I'm a super late bloomer. But what I was giving to was, first of all, relationships and a hope that I would have a child at some point because I'm an only child as you know and um, and I always wanted to have a kid so um, so I was basically like waiting to be in a relationship in which I could have a child and I was also working my ass off for the college I still teach at the college of Staten Island and giving so much myself much more of myself than I should have I mean I think it probably even made other people uncomfortable but I was overcompensating in a huge way which mm-hmm. is back to the whole father problem is sort of like I swear to God I'm not a piece of shit you know, I'm just going to, like, work until I fucking die. Um, so I was doing that. And then there was this moment of sort of rebellion toward that when I was – I had this window, a six-month window, in which I could get pregnant. My ovaries were referred to as prematurely aging ovaries, okay? And they were, like, 42-year-old ovaries in a 37-year-old woman's body. So they were, like, they were like, you need to do this. And my insurance approved it and was paying for it. So I was, like, there is a – and honestly, it's truly harrowing when in terms of, like, how many – eggs and embryos I produced that I actually did have a kid. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's amazing. So the thing is, it's like I was trying to, you know, create a solution. And of course, I wanted to be married and have a father for my child. And so I, Got together with a couple of different people. And one of them was someone I knew in high school. And then it became really apparent in the relationship that he didn't really care if I had a baby. He already had kids. And he wanted me to put it off by a year. Mm -hmm. And then I finally was just like, you know, fuck you. This is what I want to do. This is actually what will make me happy. Like, this is is what I want to do. And so it really was this sort of movement toward... It was so liberating, I can't even tell you. It was so freeing of just focusing on this thing and, and getting pregnant and being pregnant, which I think is really a peculiar and interesting experience. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about fascinating. So, you know, it was, kind of, it was kind of like giving myself the, and also my father was very critical of this decision. He said, well, I don't know why you wanted to do that. Because my father was always like, oh, I never wanted to have children. You know, I mean, my father was really fucking mean sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I never really want you to be alive. So having a kid in a lot of ways went really, it was very counter to my father also. It was this very positive narrative of like, and I love the fact that you could go and get pregnant without having sex. That seemed like the greatest thing of all, that you could buy sperm. Like, and once I bought the sperm I bought, I was like, wow, this is like, I chose my sperm. It's like, because a friend of mine was like, well, you know, I could help you out. And I was like, no, I I like the sperm I got. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And it just basically, it was this thing. I mean, it really is, again, as in terms of metaphors or gardens or fertility and doing something very intentional and thinking about what you're going to do. um, Once this sort of, this thing was planted, it grew so many things because so many of my, my very good relationships now are through my child or people I've met, you know, because my child does an activity. Also, um, we have family who use the same sperm donor, so I met these amazing people who had a baby, who's my daughter's half sister, and they're gym teachers and athletes. Like I was terrified, and they're they're very kind and wonderful people. So, so it's just like it it really is. It was like my life was very interior, and it necessarily became much more exterior. And it's it's a thousand times better. I mean, of course, it's all interesting. I think.
0: Well first of all what you said was liberating was having the clarity of making the
1: decision and not waiting for a guy to let yes. me not letting a guy say oh okay you can have a baby
0: yes it seems to me and and tell me if i'm wrong that like even though motherhood you know requires so much you know care of others so much time so much energy so many sensitivity. resources sensitivity oh. that it also forced you and enabled you to take care of yourself mm-hmm. in a very different way, to speak back to your father, to make different choices, to limit your work life, which you were giving way too much.
1: Yeah. And mother actually enjoy myself. Yes. Yeah.
0: Which I think is not something that's very much discussed. All the things that I knew might be good for me as a person who really tended towards depression and anxiety, I was not able to do for myself, but I was able to do for my children. And then I had the experience of doing it for myself. And I became a person who was able to
1: take care of myself for really the first time in my life. It's very, very true. And, you know, it's so funny, like, I think you put it so well, because, for example, I was totally happy with dating certain people who are like really not I mean like you know I'm trying to be like tactful here why but exactly <laughs> and but there are people who literally I was just like you know once I had a kid I was like sorry baby's going to sleep at seven thirty. see ya yeah or you know just get away from me and stay away from me forever like I don't want you near my child um and and you know it took a while because I even when my daughter was young you think that if you're if you have a child on your own that men will just leave you alone but that doesn't happen and, um, you know, you still date, and, like, you still conduct a semi-normal life, but then I was, like, you know, I got to a point where I just stopped dating completely, because I was not going to bring someone into my daughter's life who was, I had really harm, I was with someone who was very harmful, and I was just, I was like, that's it, I'm never, ever getting involved with anyone again, And and the person who I'm involved with now is someone who I knew when I was 18, I knew him in college, and it was, like, it was a very different process in terms of getting involved with him and getting to know him. So there's that too. There's also like, you know, there's a lot of shit you'll tolerate with yourself because you're like, well, I'm a piece of shit. So I'll just tolerate shit, but you won't put up with it with your kid. You're like, no way. I mean, my kid was saying to this girl today before she got on camp for the bus, like, will you sit next to me. And this girl's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Like it was going to be such a drag. This kid's holding like this huge bag of potato chips. That's like the snack she's bringing with her. I'm just like, first of all, I don't like your attitude. Like this is like, I know like my daughter is a little bit of a motor mouth. So I know that it can be like a little much Mm -hmm. probably to sit next to her on the bus because she talks a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a lot going on. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's not like just like idle conversation. You know what I'm saying? So, but I was just like, you know, come on. Like this is a nice kid. The thing that really surprised me was that maybe and this is all is sort of under the subheading of narcissism, is that when Lucia was born, I was like, Who is this person? Mm. Like I was like, I've never seen this person before. Apparently this is who's been like hanging out inside my body and I was just like completely like like holy shit like and I really liked her. First of all, apparently, according to the whole mythology of me as a baby, is that I was colicky. I cried all the time, and my parents were like, "We're never having children again." And my dad gets a vasectomy when I'm like two. So my mother was like, "Oh, you'll see someday," because like the idea was I would have a baby that would be like me as a baby and be very unpleasant. But Lucia was a very good baby, and she was she was very happy, and she was just like smiling all the time. And I just uh, she was just great. It was so it was it was so much fun. Wait, did your mom, is the story, because
0: we never really know the truth, but is the story that your mom convinced your dad to have you?
1: No, no, no. I think they both agreed because it was something that society, that they felt that they should do, that they should have a child, and they realized that they really didn't like being parents so much so that they were just going to like and not have any more children. So it's like, you know, they tried. It's all the sort of like, well, we realized we really weren't cut out for it, but then we did our best type of thing. It's like I actually don't need to know that shit yeah yet you feel compelled to tell me it's it's a kind of narcissism right I mean i like i you can tell I'm in therapy right now, but it's just a sort of like um not really respecting the place that the child should like sort of rightly have in the lives of two adults so but with my daughter, one thing that was very apparent about her from the beginning was she was very very kind and very loving, and mm-hmm. she's very extroverted, so she loves me, mm-hmm. and honestly, my daughter the love that she gives me really makes me a better person mm-hmm. like day to day you know I mean she she blows me away because her genuine interest in things her enthusiasm about she's I mean she is totally her own person and 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 I just like she's one one of you know it's one of the best relationships I've had in terms of just even intellectually
0: mm-hmm. well it sounds like you know to some extent the wonder and engagement that you approached finding out who she is was also at the same time you were finding out who you were in this other incarnation like that you weren't a person who was only you know a super hard worker you know devoted yeah. to poetry you know and you became much more externally oriented and you know um and and also to see yourself as somebody who is you know loved in that way by your daughter, I think is very profound.
1: Yeah, I think it's like okay. Well, there's two things I think. I think it's really important, even when like when you have jobs, like say like me, you're in academia, that you don't let like, you try to do various things because I think you can find out that you're good at things that you didn't know you'd be good at, mm. like gardening. I never knew I would enjoy or be good at gardening. So the the joy of that is just being a completely different person and and applying skills that I use for something else to this new thing. You know, I really I think it's great. It's a great experience. But then also, like, um, like you know, my daughter recognized very early on that my father wasn't very nice to me. Mm. And so she said at one point, she was like, Grandpa loves me, right? Because he really did love her. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know he does. She's like, he doesn't like you very much. And I was like, yeah, I know, you know. But then at one point later on, I was sort of like, ouch. But then later on, we were hanging out with my parents and my father was like, he was just very impatient. He was being kind of not very nice to me. And my daughter was just like, let's go downstairs. She just like, to, like took me away from it all, you know. So, you know, I didn't have any siblings. And then and my mother's version is quite a bit different than mine. And we moved a lot. So there's like this sense of like not having validity in that and then having that validated by my daughter is um, very helpful. Yeah. Let's talk about Vita for a second. Okay. Because... You know,
0: I'm thinking about the connection between you know, it's not that you weren't in the world before you became a mom. Like you had done legitimate dangers with Michael Dumanis. And that was like a, a huge a huge project, yeah. right? But That
1: was different than Vita. They're similar, though, because with the anthology, as I was just, you know, there were some really good anthologies, like Kevin Proofer's anthology. There were a bunch of anthologies that I liked, but I really wanted to teach, like, younger contemporary poets, and I could never find, you know, it doesn't exist, is the answer, because, you know, I was trying to create an anthology that I'd want to teach with. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, once it was created and I was teaching with, with it, I was like, I don't like this anthology. If I had like a room I could go into where I could just like have endless amounts of time, you know, that fantasy room, I would love to redo and revamp legitimate dangers, you know, and there isn't a time. And it's so political mm-hmm. doing an anthology that it invites so much discord into your life. It's like that, that, I mean, that definitely takes at least a year or more away from writing poems, yeah. doing it. I learned so much from it. But the thing is, is when I did it, I was waiting for someone else to do this anthology. And then I was like, you know what? I might have to do the anthology. And really, I didn't want to do the anthology because then everyone would hate me Mm -hmm. or question me or I'm not smart enough or I haven't... Why didn't I include so-and-so? And And I could only do it with someone like Michael because we genuinely cared about it and we were also already making a a collection of poems in our classes that we were teaching. And also, we have really different tastes. Mm -hmm. And so the whole um, time we did it, I mean, we tangled. I mean, we fought all the time about what poems we should put in so okay for example um, with the Morrow Anthology which is an anthology I like a lot mm-hmm. they split they had like 80 poets and they split them one guy did 40 the other guy did 40 Michael and I I want to do that okay I want to just like go my own way and pick my 40 poets or whatever and mm-hmm. pick the poems but Michael's not the person who will do anything without having a very long conversation mm-hmm. and that's why he's valuable as a thinker mm-hmm. and um, so he and I Went through every single poem. It was it was a huge process, and it changed the way I think about poetry. I mean, completely. And I learned so much about poetry. It's like a, it's almost equivalent, to like of the, the getting the PhD thing, where I I learned a lot. I think it, ultimately it might have taken a year away from my writing, mm-hmm. but it helped my writing. And then also having a kid is the same is the same thing. Like I might have lost two years of poetry, but so fucking what? Because I'm on to a totally different subject matter and have a completely different perspective. That's gonna pay off for the poems. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean when I when Ariel and I put women poets on mentorship together I was literally having nightmares about permissions like I was dreaming of permissions forms and mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. was it was so stressful especially towards the end of that project but it was like getting a degree having to make the decisions justify the decisions think about you know putting the book together, writing an introduction, you know, uh, thinking about what we were doing, why we were doing it. I mean, I'm wondering what are the ways in which you would say it changed the way you think about poetry? Cause intuitively that makes sense to well, me, but I'm I having mean, trouble. Okay.
1: First of all, um, you know, I didn't read a lot of living poets at the time mm-hmm. and I'm like, I really, really was like a dead poet kind of girl. The thing is is that now i had to read all the poets like i literally had to read them because i was just like i didn't want to be influenced by my contemporaries i there's certain things that i fend off i fend off reading super contemporary work um unless i'm teaching it and i also don't read things like poets i try and sort of like be cut off a little bit from things that are going to distract me of course i mean you can't do that completely nor would you want to but like i I'd, i would have a hard time keeping up with like all the recent books but then I taught a bunch of recent books last semester. And mm-hmm. so so it's not like I, I'm completely shut off because I think I wouldn't be a good literary, literary citizen if I did that. But the anthology was an act of, like, literary citizenship where I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. It's going like, to be about creating conversation and pulling these people together, and I will be hated for it, which I'm very uncomfortable with. But it has to be, it, it's got to come together. We had the opportunity, too, to do it. Like, Sarah Bam was willing to publish it, and we were willing to sort of, like, analyze all these anthologies and then to create sort of the anthology of our dreams. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting. But I have to tell you, that was also very traumatic. I mean, there were periods where Michael and I would just, like, see the book and be like, ugh, oh. you know, um, because it was so it was so hard. Which stage was most traumatic? Was it the
0: reviews? Was it making the final decisions was it earlier on
1: when you were like I don't know if we're going to be able to um okay for me the most traumatic thing was the introduction because mm-hmm. I had no idea what to write and Michael ended up writing the entire introduction did an incredible job but I was like oh shit I was I kind of like my mind went blank and I was just like feeling very furtive like I just wanted to you know go hide in the basement or something whenever the introduction came up fortunately he took care of that um I would say the most annoying was when um, I would be trying to track down certain writers to get them to sign things and they would be like and this is very few people but there's some very arrogant writers out there mm-hmm. they'd be like oh I'm at Yado, and now I'm going to McDowell and I'd be like "Why well, I'm here in fucking Staten Island bitch sign this pa- <laughs> sign this form for me because I'm anthologizing you yeah so some people were real douches very few though I have mm-hmm. to say um the joy was getting to know all these writers and also we arranged a bunch of readings afterwards and put all these people in conversation and people would meet each other and it was like so completely fun. I made a lot of friends through the anthology and I learned a lot about poetry just from reading them you know so. But this actually does bring us to Vita. Say what it is. Well it's similar to the anthology in that it sort of was like I never really meant to do this right ever but basically I had had my baby. After I had my baby I kind of lived in this sort of like I was feminist, but I don't think I really conceived of myself as a woman, okay? Yeah. Um. And then I had my baby, and I was pushing a stroller around, and and I was a woman, right? And so I was just like, wow, this sucks, you know? I was like, really a woman? And it was embarrassing, you know? And, like, people wouldn't talk to me, like some of my colleagues, you know? They wouldn't even, like, look at my baby. I had done this, you know? Really, to have a baby in academia, by some women, it's just like, it's, you. that's not what you should be producing, and the people I got along with best were the secretaries who had all had children. and They would help me look out for my baby, and they were incredibly kind to me. And I didn't have – I mean, I didn't have childcare until she was six months old, so I was mm-hmm. just going around with this baby all the time, you know? So mm-hmm. everywhere I went, I had my baby with me, which was great, actually. Um, so – There was a lot of tough stuff to negotiate in the beginning with having a baby because I was just planning on doing everything I had done before while having a baby. But other people were just, they were very confused by that notion. So even when I was pregnant, you know, there was a point where I was working at the College of Staten Island and I was like at my office working on grant applications at like one in the morning and I was listening to very loud music. And security came by because they were like, what is this person doing in the building? And there was this heavy knocking on the door and I opened a door and I was really annoyed because I was right in the middle of doing something and I told you I'm not nice while I work and I was like what and there was like three security guards and I was like standing there like this pregnant woman you know blasting music I'm wanting like I was still doing all the stuff that I normally did mm-hmm. so then I was like you know relegated to being a woman which was like uh, you, you know like I hadn't already fucking noticed I mean I, I should have noticed more but I was like, um, it just didn't seem any point in not saying what I thought and I felt like the conversation about sexism and about how men really only read men and women weren't getting the prizes and like, um, there were just all kinds of irritating things that I never talked about because I was being polite but I would have conversations with other women where we'd be like, yeah, you know, what the fuck Mm -hmm. and then I was just like, I'm really tired of this shit. Okay, so I got that AWP panel proposal rejected and I was like, really, I really thought it was really good. In fact, today's the day that AWP yes. panel pros were approved. And I was shocked at the one that was approved because it was really a really boring panel. I'm like, what, do we have to come up with like incredibly boring panels? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, so this panel was, it was all on women poets and stuff like that. And I was really excited about it. And it wasn't taken as panel on new critics, new criticism was taken. And I was just like, I was pissed. Right. Mm-hmm. But then but I'm usually like, OK, it's a rejection, whatever. But I was folding all that little laundry that mm-hmm. babies have because, you know, they spit up on their clothes all the time. So you're always washing clothes and folding shit and all the little socks. And and I was just doing this. And then I was like, you know, I just I just really couldn't let it go. And I started thinking of a Tilly Olson story. Yep. I stand here ironing and I was kind of like making fun of myself in my head. Like I'm like this woman. Now I have a child and I'm folding the laundry and I'm bent over and, you know, I'm just like I'm being like the system just has me down. You know, I'm like the socks being rolled up in the balls. And so then I just sat down. And I sort of I wrote a letter where I was like just a letter to the world about being, you know, having this moment and being pissed off about this panel not being taken. I'm being like, here's the panel. Here's mm-hmm. the panel. It's not just that, like, I think I'm so great because I don't. It's that I, I actually think this is good. Here's a panel. But I'm also sick about. Men thinking that it's okay to say they don't read women around women. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also tired of men obviously being published more than women. I'm just tired of all these things that are just like super in your face. Like men don't have to notice or they think they don't have to notice. And also I had been at Swanee Writers Conference and that's, you know, and I had seen Francine Prose do her um, reader essay, Scent of a Woman's Ink. And um, and I love that essay. And I remember I was sitting with a friend who was male And he was like, I really don't understand what this is all about. Like, he just didn't understand what she was getting at. Like, And and to me, it wasn't so much didn't, it was wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just lack of sort of being willing to go there and think about it. And so I really only wanted to be in conversation with women about this. Also, I recognize the intense hypocrisy of how, and this is, in fact, why I did this panel. Because I got the idea from being on Your Mom Poets Listserv. Because I was in conversation with all these female poets I didn't know anything about. And I really was like, oh my God, we're all kind of in the same boat, whatever aesthetic camp you're in, you still are kind of shit on by various like patriarchal forces or individuals. And so, and and there were just women who were at different stages in their lives than me. And I was like, I was like, I have been distracted from even noticing what's going on with these women by schools, by the idea that I am a certain type of poet. Um, by the fact that I am a poet and not a fiction writer, Mm -hmm. by all of these categories. And what I never realized was that all of this is happening to all these other women. And I was like, well, that's a really effective way to diminish the power of women. And so what I noticed was that I had always really not liked Erin Ballou. (laughs) And I didn't like Erin Ballou because we were up for the same job, and she got the job. And then I heard that she really didn't like me, and she heard that I didn't really like her. And this was information that was communicated to us Mm -hmm. about each other, which wasn't even really true. And also she scared me. I didn't, I was like, who is this person? I don't get it. And there were a bunch of other women too. I was like, I just didn't like them. And I was like, you don't like these people because they're like you, you know? And I had started to notice that in my life that I would like take a special umbrage to people who I actually really resembled in a lot of ways. Um, and I was like, I have to be in conversation with these people. And I have to be in conversation with many more people than that. Mm-hmm. Like, I just haven't been talking to women. So that just was like the huge – and also, I just didn't give a shit anymore. I was so tired. And I was like, I just – I don't care what people think anymore. I'm covered with spit up. I've mm-hmm. never been this exhausted in my life. And, and you know what? It's like – and also, I had this this person who's going to live a lot longer than me, God willing – And I just felt like I just didn't care anymore. I just, I didn't care about like the reputation. And that partly comes from exhaustion, Mm -hmm. as you know, which makes people do crazy things. And so I sent out, I sent out this thing and then um, I went to bed and I sent it to Erin Ballou. And she forwarded it to like a million trillion people. So the next day I had like literally hundreds of emails in my inbox. And they were like from like Carolyn Frechet and then, or from like really random people from all over the country. So I was like, Oh shit. Like, what do I do now? Because I was like, we should just have an organization. Because I was like, there's no organization for female writers, like, nationally. And why don't we have that? Anyway, so then I did what I, you know, as with Michael Dumas, I was like, I can't, I, I can't do this alone. And Erin Ballou was clearly, because I was afraid of her, I figured everyone else is afraid of her. <laughs> so this was a good person to team up with. And she's super smart. Mm-hmm. So, and plus, she was really enthusiastic about it too. And we had connected a few times about women's poetry and feminism. And I knew she was, like, really super keen about it. And then, of course, she's one of my very best friends, you know. So, so you know, she's just – so that's, that's how it started. Right. And so the initial
0: conception of it was that it was going to be just like an organization for women writers
1: that would do what? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, we had a lot of ideas. One thing I really wanted to do was have a conference, like a conference instead of AWP that would be on a campus mm-hmm. and it would be multi-genre and that it wouldn't be overscheduled so that people would stay on the campus and actually get to, like, it would be much smaller than AWP and would be only women's writing, and it would be something where you could really discover a lot about what, in a short period of time, what was going on in other genres. Like, you know, you could go to a play that evening. We could have, like, artwork that wouldn't be divided into a set of camps. You know, you really would learn about what was going on with other women across the board. So that's what I was eager to do. That was the main thing I wanted to do. And that never happened. Honestly, like, my life is probably not complete, you know? I would really, I think there should be, like, a Vita conference. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, I wanted Vita to be, like, a very intellectual space Mm -hmm. in the most exciting way. Intellectual, but also pretty personal. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, with The Count, you know, that was something, that was a project that we undertook, As we were developing Vita, but I also didn't know exactly what I wanted Vita to be because I wanted to see what other people wanted it to be. And so here is the flaw of Vita: the flaw was that I opened it up to a lot of people, and I learned a lot from a lot of people. But then, of course, all these people have different ideas, and so you have to change your mind a lot and, and, and compromise a lot. And that's really difficult when you're expected to lead. And also, I didn't necessarily like want to be a leader. I felt like I was kind of, you know, okay, I started this and and I felt that I should do it. I felt it was like, it, I mean, really on any given day I would have like run screaming. Mm-hmm. But it was really interesting. The thing is I learned so much from it and I met so many people and I loved it. But I also hated it as an introvert.
0: Right. So the count became sort of like the most well-known part of mm-hmm. Vita. And it sort of like became what kind of the only thing that some people knew about Vita. Yeah. And the count was basically... Looking at first a few, and then more and more publications, and counting up um, how many poems or essays or short stories were written by
1: female writers and male writers, and publishing those statistics. Right, and we did counts on a bunch of different things. But basically, we looked at 13 or 14 magazines, and we would look at just generally the breakdown between men and women. Then we also we also broke them down by genre. Um, then we also looked at male right. to female book reviewers and then we also looked at what books were reviewed, yes. male and female book reviews. And then we also, we, we have there, I don't know if it's on the website, it's buried in there somewhere, but we also did a count for best American. Mm-hmm. We did account count for a number of poetry prizes. A whole prize count is, is, is somewhere in there. We did a bunch of different counts. You know, of course it always breaks down to the same. It's usually 70% male and 30% female. But also, it was interesting because you got to see that like, okay, maybe women get as many prizes, but they always get the, 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 the cheap ones mm. that, that hardly, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, just the bias was uh, glaring. Mm-hmm.
0: Remind me what year
1: uh Vita was- Started in, ni- in 2009, the uh-huh. year my daughter was born. Uh-huh. And then I think the first count came out like 2011 or 12. Right. And, you know, it was so crazy because... Um, I'm really bad at numbers. The last math class I did was like in summer school after like 10th or 11th grade and I like got a D in it. So I'm really like, I can't count. But I was like, even I can count this shit. Like that's how stupid it is and how obvious it is. Because everyone was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like, you haven't noticed this for like the past 20 years? Because I always noticed it. And just like so many other people, it's like, yeah, I mean just look at it, you know, it's obvious. So, and but then we we would we we all counted. Like we would have the actual magazines and I would spend a lot of time at the public library in Staten Island because ironically, they would subscribe to these library journals. They would mm. have like a lot of these a lot of this information. Um I mean tracking down the information was really crazy. And I would have the baby with me. You know what Did I'm saying? Did you
0: think you were com- had completely lost your mind? I mean, you're doing what's now unpaid work,
1: right? I getting, was on a mission. I didn't think it was crazy in the uh-huh. slightest. I mean, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And um, and it was really, really, it's, it was really interesting. It was really exciting. Coming up with, like, the whole concept of the count and, you know, and the graphics for Vita. And when the first count came out, it was fascinating. I mean, to me, it was like the reward was seeing the response. And I actually liked the fact that it was very personal and grueling and had to, you know, I mean, they would say bean pickers, and it's, yeah, yeah, bean pickers. You know, I'm sitting in my living room, fucking counting the New Yorker,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I've smoked two packs of cigarettes because I thought the New Yorker was going to be better than this. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it also really depra- it showed me also showed me something really interesting in terms of, I would think that a magazine like the New Yorker, because I think I I don't read the New Yorker that much, but I'd read it more than some other magazines. I would be like, this looks pretty good. And then I would count it, and I'd be like, it's not. It's exactly the same. And so I'd be like, well, what made me think this was good? Was it that there was a female author on front? Was it – Was it? how was a magazine laid out that it made it look – you know, it's the type of thing where if there's three women, it seems like seven type mm-hmm. of thing. You know what I mean? So um, it was super depressing at times. But, you know, I'm not a big money person, I guess, you know. I just sort of um, – to me, I guess when you're writing poetry, you're just like, this thing has to happen. I I put a lot of, like, my own money in. And, of course, a shitload of my time. I never expected to, like, make any money. But, I mean, one of the things that came with it was power, and I didn't particularly like doing the whole power thing of, you know, of having people think that you can do things for them or give them positions or do something, something like that. Was not something that appealed to me about it because I think that one of the things that I really, really like about, actually, Vita still is um, is that – people who are running Vita don't use it to promote their own work mm-hmm. and we were really adamant about that that Vita is something like when I used to run into people when I'd be wearing a Vita t-shirt like I would be in Cambridge teaching at Leslie and someone would say oh you like Vita too I'd be like actually I founded Vita mm-hmm. and then they would be like okay whatever like you know you know what I mean like it's just like huh. you know because because like they didn't know that I found a Vita because Vita was Vita. Vita Mm -hmm. was like, Mm -hmm. it was separate from me. And I really thought that that was, um, that that spoke to the success of the organization because there were a lot of, ton of people who worked on it.
0: My sense is that there are many successes of Vita. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I remember early on that at least some editors and publications were talking about being ashamed of Mm -hmm. the count and trying to, you know, not be called out on next year's count. Um, is your sense
1: that there was some, you know, is it still 70-30? I don't know because I'm not, I haven't been involved with Vita for what seems like a really long time. But I have to say that I don't really think of it as calling out because they were publishing those people. If you read the Table of Contents, it's all there. It's, it's, it's there. It's not like, oh, I found you in the back room like publishing more men. It was a totally public and overact. And I also don't think that shame is a very productive emotion. And maybe I need to learn a lot more about that but for me the purpose of presenting an account wasn't you're all pieces of shit it was hey what why
0: Mm.
1: like because I actually think that male narratives are we think they're more important but they're not so it's like you know what sorts of bias do we all have in place you know at least I certainly had that given my education an education I value You know, I had to, like, look at that a whole lot harder and be like, because I had so many biases. I mean, it was ridiculous. So did Aaron. Aaron and I would have conversations about this all the time. To me, it wasn't about shame. It really wasn't. It was about, like, hey, let's, like, have a candid conversation about this instead of, like, feeling all squirrely and weird. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, like, everybody has biases. And rather, like, if we can look at the way they're shaped, then that, I think, is more helpful. I think it's more objective and I just think it's a, it's a lot more constructive for the project in general.
0: Yeah. So can you talk about um, your decision to step away from Vita? Who's running Vita now? How it's changed or what it's doing now? I know it's, it's really made an effort to become more intersectional in, yeah. in, in its approach. So, yeah, talk about that.
1: Well, I don't, you know, I try to keep, like, a distance from Vita because, for one thing, it's not my organization anymore. Um, I think that for the health of any sort of nonprofit, it's important that it transitions. And it's sort of, I guess, like, I have to respect the vision of the people who now run Vita. So I don't tend to, like, watch over it a whole lot, Mm -hmm. right? Because then, of course, I'll be like, well, where's this? And what's this thing? And things that really are almost like none of my business right now. So my decision to transition off Vita was, you know, there was always a struggle within, within Vita. You know, do we go more sort of like, I guess, for lack of a better words, sort of more corporate or, you know, or are we more grassroots? What are the more important topics to pursue? What sort of features do we have? I mean, you know, it's endless. And I was just totally, totally exhausted, basically. And they will, people will tell you when you're not involved in a nonprofit, they'll be like, well, there's burnout. And I had definitely burnt out. Okay, I was really mostly interested in Vita T-shirts by that point, point. <laughs> um, and I mean, I wish I had had more energy; I could have stayed in for longer. But I also really had to go back to my life as a writer. Mm-hmm. And coming to Maine was—it uh, was pretty much the first night I came to Maine that I was like, it was the air was smelled so good. I mean, I was I was newly involved with someone; I knew this is a person I was going to be with. And I knew that Vita came into my life like every hour I'd be on the phone or texting someone about Vita. I mean, I was always involved with Vita. It's like, it's just time to like step back from this. And it was a good point to do it. And so it was, it was mostly because I, I, just, I, I needed to, but also I think it was necessary for the organization. And, and, you know, also there were disagreements about what direction we should move in. And, and those, those were no longer disagreements that could be compromised or could be agreed upon and it was it was time to split uh-huh, you know uh-huh. which i think just happens with organizations um you have
0: spent a lot of time writing teaching you have three degrees you have a mfa in fiction from iowa you have a mfa in poetry from uh, houston. houston and you have a phd in literature also from houston no um cincinnati from cincinnati yeah so you've spent a lot of time in kind of
1: self-loistered
0: right yeah, that's actually yeah. like cloistered, mm-hmm. but in in a kind of deep intellectual engagement, deep creative engagement. You've also kind of through the anthology and through Vita, kind of like almost created these communities that are these very intensive acts of literary citizenship, mm-hmm. and so. I guess I'm curious to know how you feel right now in terms of the balance of your life between the creative, the professional, by which we mostly mean academia, Mm -hmm. the personal, um, and the political. So I don't know how you're feeling about that part of your life. you
1: know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for running Vita is not easy. And whatever direction the people who are running Vita now, like Amy King and Camille Rankine and Lynn Melnick, Doing it. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a huge, huge, huge undertaking. Um, in some ways, I feel like there's so many opportunities right now with Me Too, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then also, everyone is so fucking prickly out there that, God forbid, you say the wrong thing ever, but it also seems like a lot of people can say some really rude shit and everyone's just like, yay, you know? So yeah, it's those are waters I'm very happy that I'm not navigating. I feel kind of like, at this point, I've kind of like washed up on a beach, you know? And that... In some ways, coming back to writing like completely is very scary because it's like, oh, okay. And then I'll just have to do my writing, you know, maybe that's why I'm gardening so much. Right. Um, but it's also great. It's actually, but, and I feel like at this point, there's a lot of stuff like, I mean, honestly, I'm doing Pilates and gardening. That sounds, it just sounds so ridiculous. I can't even believe that's me. But the experience of it is so much better than the way it sounds right it um, sounds kind of great yeah it sounds so I mean, maybe like some it sounds people so upper feel... middle class white lady
0: right it does sound like that too yeah um, <laughs> you
1: know and and also middle aged white lady yeah yeah you know, yeah but um, i am not wearing Eileen fisher clothes <laughs> and i fucking hate that like the, that sort of middle class older lady stuff like there's all these stores in maine where like you go in there and you're like all that's for sale here is shapeless clothes made out of like rough pastel fabrics various hideous leather bags and belts and soaps and candles Mm. that sounds very ageist of me but um yeah I think that I really use the time of like guarding us to think about writing Mm -hmm. and that that's something that I've started to do more as a mother like I just like I spend a lot more time thinking about writing than writing
0: I mean I think it's really interesting I have said on commonplace and many many times off of commonplace that one of the goals or intentions that I have moving forward in my life is to try to write out of more joy and Mm -hmm. out of like less suffering um, how to be more in a state of gratitude and Mm -hmm. and really to figure out like how to live a life that is more joyful and sane and healthy in some ways, I think that's partly what you're describing, whether or not that was your intention or not. And I, when I hear you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, I think this is a great idea for Kate, cigarette or not, to sit in her garden and think, hmm, this is what I'm going to do. And to think about your writing and to spend, you know, your summers and maybe hopefully not even just your summers you know, in your work, you are a poet. This is part of why I'm talking to you, mm-hmm. and then I also feel this like creeping thing, even in the way I pose this question to you, like, well, what are you doing with your social activism? You know, are you checking off that box? Are you doing enough? Are you right? you know, and I think first of all, those two things are not always opposite. Second of all, like I do think we're at a moment where it feels like very, very urgent, and so it's even harder, like our middle age. Has coincided with an intensely pathological moment in history, mm-hmm. and I think also as middle-aged white women, it's unclear whether we are really the villains mm-hmm. <laughs> or not, um,
1: and whether There's a real binary. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, and so I think all of those things. I don't know. I'm not. I don't even really know where I'm going with this. I'm just noticing that, like, the question even that I'm asking you, I think reveals more about my own. Anxiety and and guilt. Well, than it's a shared.
1: Else. I mean, it's shared. You know. Um, well, you know, I try to limit the time I spend on social media because it's sometimes, like, really, really upsetting. And a lot of times, it's like when I notice people sort of willfully misunderstanding each other or shutting each other down or just being incredibly unkind. Like, there's some really obnoxious shit going down. In terms of like my own activism, I I think that writing is a political act. You know, I, I remember when I was way younger, and I'd be like, oh my god. Like, Adrienne Rich. Like, I should just be, like, writing all... You know, like, what what am I... I'm not doing enough. And then, then, you know, and you encounter a lot of younger people who feel this way. It's like, you can only do so much. And I think if you're a parent, you're already doing a lot by being a woman who lives her life a certain way and modeling yourself for kids. Also, if you're teaching, you're modeling for people or you're having conversations with people so I think that that's incredibly important I mean I had you know just even being at Colby which is a really different demographic of student I've had some really interesting conversations with young women and men especially during the election so you know we did like a lot of work around that Mm -hmm. as a class Mm -hmm. and as people and as a community so okay maybe that happened with just a small number of people but that's significant I think that's really significant. So maybe I'm not on Twitter. Well, you know what? I am actually really not witty enough to like do anything interesting on Twitter. I'm just like, I know it's not interesting enough and I'm sporadic. I don't really have, I'm not like the kind of like runner who can handle Twitter. I'm way more of like a Facebook person. But I've also really retreated from Facebook because what I realized is that I really like communicating with people on Facebook. I love the people on Facebook, but I spend a lot of time on Facebook and not with my husband. Mm Mm-hmm. And I ended up using Facebook kind of as a journal and as an outlet. And, you know, ultimately, it's like, will these people be there for me? <laughs> right? Are they coming to my funeral? And so, so I've actually had some – I actually almost thought about, like, withdrawing from social media completely this summer and for a period of time, just, like, quitting drinking. I was like, it's kind of an addiction, and it really doesn't give me anything real. Mm. And though I don't think that's entirely true. I actually really – 'Cause what is real, what's not real. So so I am sort of thinking about that. And you know, I mean, I think in some ways we're really gifted to have um grown up in a time when we there wasn't a internet. I mean, it's so terrific to know what that is. Yeah you know so but i also think if you're thinking like oh my god i'm not doing enough i need to be going to more protests so go to a protest so make sure you do but you don't have to beat yourself up about it Mm -hmm. i'm just trying to be a more decent person in my day-to-day interactions and slow down and be gracious Mm -hmm. that's a huge like i used to be so fucking rude and obnoxious and angry all the time like i feel like i have totally like lowered all of my toxic emissions Mm -hmm. as a person just going around so are you nicer to cashiers?
0: i am much nicer to everybody (laughs) you said in an interview somebody asked you
1: advice
0: for younger writers and you said know why writing poetry matters to you
1: yeah I think I'll stand by that okay because you know there's some people like you encounter them and who knows why they're writing poetry I mean I don't know about you but like it wasn't like I was like hey I have a good idea yeah I'm gonna write poetry (laughs) like (laughs) I mean how ludicrous is that I mean like when did you start writing in fifth grade, exactly. Mm-hmm. I started in fifth or sixth grade with some very, very, very bad poems, mm-hmm. and then I just kept on writing them. And I don't think I'm I've still even writing poems. those same bad poems. Yeah, I mean, exactly about yeah. the same things. Me too, right? Yeah. And so it's like, how embarrassing is that? So it's like the idea that like being a poet is cool or something like that. That is, I mean, you just really should be doing something else. You should be doing something that like makes you a decent living, because I think that finding coolness through poetry is like absolutely. Just a really bad idea. I mean, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. And I really think that, I, I really do believe that poets are born. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds really hokey, but I don't think I there was ever any, I, don't, I didn't ever have any choice. Okay, so you didn't, it, so you were sort of, you didn't really have a choice. You didn't really
0: like set out to like become a poet. But now you have been for a long time. So how oh, would I always
1: I knew I was from when I was like 17. I was okay. like, oh, this is what I'm going to
0: do. Okay. So how would you articulate some small piece of why writing poetry matters to you?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. You turned my question on me. Um, <laughs> well, I was surprised well, that I the know person talked to you didn't example, ask you. I know I For example, I know that I don't write poetry to be published. Mhm. I've, in fact, stopped sending my stuff out. And I I'm, one of my bad habits is I don't revise my stuff, so I can't send it out. But I, of course, could revise it, but it delays publishing. And I used to be really, I loved sending my stuff out. I had a lot of finished poems. Where I was always workshopping and finishing up my poems. And I've become much more private as a poet. So it's like I really, like, I feel like I've sort of have finally earned the right to just, like, write poems almost more for myself. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and um, earned so... Earned the right because... Because I've written, you know, it's like I've done like you've the performances. And, yeah. I've done like the various performances. So maybe I can just like write something. You have three something. degrees. You've you've the degrees those. are very happenstance. In fact, I was thinking of it as sort of like imagine I was like a hermit crab and I was finding different shells to live in. Okay, huh. I just needed time to write, and like I knew that working an office job, like I, w- I had no money. Mm-hmm. So I d- I knew that if I had an office job, I would never have time to write, and I would be it would be, I mean, I'd actually be comfortable financially. But I just needed time to write, and that's why I stayed in academia. But it's just a series of, of larger shells that I mm-hmm. moved into, right? So in academia, it's still kind of like this is like the hermit crab shell. And mm-hmm. I'm like the nasty crab that's living inside it and taking <laughs> advantage of it. But how do, So how did you earn the right to be more private as a poet? Poetry does feel like a performance to me when you, you know, I think that poem should be very separate from its author. And that it should just be out in the world and totally be its own thing. So that when you see it, you're like, holy shit, like, I made that thing? And I'm allowing my poetry to be closer to my life. And, you know, that's just because I've, now that's the material I'm working with. That's actually what I'm living with. Um, and also because it's, it's, it's interesting and fun and, you know, challenging. But I always think, okay, for example, with my third book, Oracle, I was like, I'm going to write a poem that's really elegiac and meditative, and it was going to be all stately and everything. And I wrote sort of the opposite book. So in some ways, I can say that the book is just going to be what it's going to be. Because once you come down doing the work, you can write the poem that's just for you and as personal. But when it comes down to doing the work, you start to look at it as an artist. And you're like, no, no, no. This needs to go here and this needs, and that, that needs to happen. And then you come away with something completely different and separate from you. Which is what I think is fascinating about the process of writing a revision.
0: Okay, so we both evaded the question of why... Writing poetry matters to you. You talked about it's related,
1: that it's becoming more private. Like, okay, so there's a quote by Pessoa's heteronym, Cairo, and he says, I have no ambitions and no desires. It's not my ambition to be a poet, it's my way of being alone. So there's the idea of like being a poet and then there's writing poetry. And I think that for me, poetry is like this is going to sound really really cheesy but I think the poetry is a very like spiritual undertaking I think the poetry poetry expresses the truth Mm. in terms of of why writing poetry is important to me I think that it uh, because I keep going to why I think it's interesting but for me it's it's very cathartic and it helps me like re-envision the world and and recast things and sort of you know And it helps me see the world better. And that's what reading poems does for me too. it connects me to someone else. And so in a lot of ways, it's like, um, first of all, you're creating a speaker and that becomes this person. And then that's kind of, it's a version of you. And so you better understand that person, but also that person's out there speaking to other people. And then you read these poems are in conversation with you. So it's all about like empathy and communication, I think. It's connection. Right. So it's really not my way of being alone. It's actually my way of being with people. And I think that that's what's important about it for me is that it's 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 it's, it's my way of connecting to people and the way that I connect to poetry, in the way that I read Salon or I read Rilke or whatever. You know, if I'm I really love re- reading Robert Creeley. If I'm really depressed, of all people, like he just speaks to me when I'm at my utter lowest. So you know, it's that type of thing where you're just like, you can't even talk to someone because you're so depressed. Yet this book will be your total friend. Yeah. That's why it's important to me.
0: That's very, 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 very similar to how I feel about it, and that's why, um, interestingly, it is so important to me to publish. Mm-hmm. But oh, I, I want can to understand. publish. I just,
1: I just don't have time to revise I know, these poems. I know, so it's like I know. I haven't putting sent my kid to bed. So it takes long. like three. It's like last night I had to get a splinter out finger, and this is a finger that every time I would look at the splinter. Just when I would like get look at it, she'd be like, she'd whip it away from me. Like <laughs> a second, I see where the splinter The yep. finger disappears. No, don't no, it hurts. Yep. And we finally got the splinter out last night. It was like such a triumph. But that was like forty-five minutes. Right. Then we're reading. Then we're doing like treatment for her wart on another finger. Oh, my
0: God. The, the, the wart Judah saga. had a
1: wart that I feel like I had a fourth
0: child with this <laughs> wart. It was the relationship with this wart and try... I, 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 did you go to a dermatologist? We did. And it was on his head. But the thing is, because it was on his head he couldn't see it so he would ask me to take photos of it and then show it to him but the photos weren't really representative of what it looked like because you know photos are not the same so we would get into a whole drama of him like wanting me to photograph it over and over and over again and show it to him because he couldn't see it so but it was like you know what is too personal what am I getting invasive like I'd be like I'd be sitting with him on the couch and I would we'd be like watching tv but I was only looking at his wart Mm on his head and I would try to be like really subtle
1: so I'd be like
0: oh can you sit over here and I was like oh my god this is like because you can
1: multitask of course and take care of the wart while you're doing something else I mean that would be my thing I mean I just I do feel
0: like it would be briefly amusing to have a list of like I didn't submit any poems from this book for public individual publication because I was dealing with the wart I didn't Mm -hmm. I didn't submit I you know I didn't write this piece that you asked me to write because child refused to go to camp Mm -hmm. I did it you know like you know all the you know the reasons and whatever everybody has their reasons health issue I mean I'm glad I have these ones and not other worse ones death in the family you know illness like you know hurricane but it is really interesting to think about like the way things get rearranged and what you're willing to do what you're not willing to do what you're what you have time for what you suddenly don't have time for and I totally get. Having time for gardening and not for submitting poems. I don't, yeah, I I mean, that does not seem like a contradiction. I can imagine someone listening being
1: like, well, why are you gardening? But that, uh, but submitting poems is is like, I mean, I don't feel obligated to submit poems. I mean, you, you, that sounds like something you should, you're supposed to be doing, but. I don't feel like I should be submitting poems. I feel like, okay, well, the poems will get submitted when they're done. What I should be doing is revising the poems. Uh-huh. Then I could submit them. But what? But the thing is, is I actually don't feel like re- revising poems right now. I feel like writing poems, and I'm going to go into a total revision mode and revise revise these things. Like, and that's kind of how I did my last book, was mm-hmm. I had a really long process of writing the poems, and then the revision process was sort of like this additional thing. And a lot of it has to just getting into the right frame of mind for revision. Right. You know? How do you know when you're
0: in the right frame of mind just because you want to or or in, or because you don't want to write poems. Line.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's sort of I think I right now feel like I have more poems to write that I want to create rough drafts for. Yeah. Like I also feel the need to write poems right now because of how I'm feeling right now mm-hmm. because my dad died and because I have this like crazy demented aunt who I'm sort of taking, you know, overseeing the care for. And um and you know what it's just like it's also that I coming to Maine has made me like first of all I was very accustomed to going to readings in New York or just doing social things in New York and then I'm in a totally different literary scene the people are incredibly nice but I still don't like belong I'm still not like I have a writing group I'm still not I'm not part of this place yet and I'm sort of enjoying that while it lasts like Mm -hmm. I'm just sort of enjoying being alone I feel kind of like um like some other person did Vita or did the anthology. I feel mm-hmm. sort of like, like, like a nobody, but like on the best, like, you know, Dickinson sort of way, you know? Mm-hmm. I have one more question. I think it's a good place to be when you're writing. Yeah. Just, to just be like, nobody fucking cares. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. And I think also to respect the seasonal nature of these things too, you know? Like if you're in a, in a season of generating new work for whatever reason, don't try to you know, do something else.
1: I'm going to, um, basically I normally teach a, a low res thing and i I'm taking a break from that and I'm just going to be teaching and writing. Like I'm really going to try incorporate writing into my entire year because I really need to get a lot of writing done this year. Mm-hmm. Like I have a shitload, a shitload that I want to write too. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff I need to be doing and I want to get back to writing and maybe, I mean the gardening the gardening was going to come to an end. It was just like, i it's, just, it's like I have well, a set of goals for the gardening.
0: But also seasonally, this is the time you have to pay attention exactly.
1: to Exactly. And also here's the thing. This is like not interesting in any way but i bought a bunch of like nutra mulch for my yard mm-hmm. and i bought way too much of it and it's on my driveway and i need to use it all up and it's and, and so basically i'm creating i would wait and do these beds in september but the fact is i need to get this mulch off my driveway now and i spent money on this mulch so i don't want to just like and it's only good for the season because it has compost in it so i'm like okay but where's this mulch? You, you know, and then I'm like, well, fuck it. it takes me like three hours to like enlarge a gardening bed. So I'm just I get very carried away by the project. And by finishing it, you know, is it delirious. It makes me delirious. I can't believe like,
0: you happy. even are, are sitting for this. I know, as, I know. A, I, like
1: <laughs> I, both, I feel like both of us are like, let's go, let's go, good, let's go to your garden. You would love it. My, my garden isn't anything to look at because not, everything's just newly planted. And yeah. so things aren't going to really show up for a couple of years, which is really cool because it's a lot like poems. Yeah. And that, you know, you're always sort of like writing about something that's like three to five years prior and it's not coming out for like three to five years from when you've written it. So it's always like, when you were talking to me about Oracle, I felt really weird because it's like, I haven't thought about Oracle in a long time. And Oracle, I finished it in like, I guess, 2014. Mm-hmm. So I really, I'm sort of like, oh yeah, that thing, like that's like a really disturbing sort of thing that I wrote. and It doesn't really relate to ha- like my life right now, that book. Do you have any new work
0: that you want to read? I could. Let me, let me see. Um, okay, good.
1: I, I was thinking I could, um, I could try and find um, the poem that I talked about at the beginning so this poem is called um it's the one that works off of Charlotte Mew and it's called my father's liquor cabinet only a year back he was split in half every organ combed clean through for tumor thread nodes fished out pried open for their bad cells I can recall the night I was shot from his seed into mother who will have none of this and he and she became us three as I came whistling through a passage with my needles of noise as if to erect a column of days positioned like bars, a winter's prison, a scorpion, flowering life amid November's blight. Days we three seeped into the chairs and couches of one room, newspapers and novels opened like opposing fans before our respective recumbent forms, reading ourselves into a stupor, In my childhood the rule was never interrupt anyone while they are reading, which is one way to forbid speaking, which is why I gleam silent and awful all these years, even when my own daughter cries, striking her knee on the iron of the bed frame. I am first inclined to punish her, withdraw from the room, and leave her to, as she says, cry all night. I'd rather cry all night than read, as my mother always chuckled. "'Well, when you cried, we just left you there to cry.' and then you finally went to sleep. And finally, I went to sleep some years later, though always doubtful as to its medicine, sleep. The psychotherapist says what I say reminds her of a tale of an old toothless lion who lures the tiny animals into his lair to comfort him in his old age. There are only footprints in the dust before his cave, going in and never out. When I am at the dentist, I forsake my teeth, "'explain they've been in my mouth so long "'you cannot expect them to be straight. "'You can't actually ask anything of them "'for all the shitty candies they chewed, "'the lies that have crawled by the weary fangs "'and ground-down molars. "'But as my psychotherapist says to remember, "'while my father may be toothless, "'I must still crouch a distance outside his lair all the same, "'like the fox did. "'For when I was solar and spasm, "'he pushed into the bottom of my mother,' and a kinetic ease overcame him as he dropped forward to rest his forehead hard against a pillowcase. My mother always washed, that smelled that good smell, all the sheets I lay on as a child smelled, dreaming the dream of breathing underwater. My face felt sunk in sand, and I sucked oxygen up through tiny straws of my nostrils, woke with my face face down in the pillow. Barely able, as I always was, to feel my way between the eaves of sleep, and waking, though rich music poured from a small radio, when I was sequestered to eat dinner in their kitchen alone, and was something I would dance to, bears in forest, merry animals, before the frosted window, on which shone the face of a brother, or some fantasy relation, who too had a fifth wisdom tooth undetected, floating some region between nasal cavity and jaw or so, as an alien relation, I like to imagine someone like me, a companion for a daughter who never pleased. Though like my father, I am dissatisfied. He hates animals and adores machine. I am all animal and anti-machine. He sinks his head back within the frame as a water moccasin withdraws into a swamp. No, wait, his concave head is too oddly perched, as if every little sapling that ever grew in him was stomped. He's been sewn up from his groin to his throat. He's no longer even capable of being mean, when that was always what he was so good at, his, shall we say, art. When I was five he told me not to believe in God. We see no reason to believe that he exists. Now he lurches under August sun before the church fair's offering of jarred preserves, dilly beans, blueberry conserves, junked air conditioner. "'Sets a fastidiously kept glassware, "'tottering to an awning erected above the shining skins "'that capped the heads of pale old men. "'Long ago, while snowed up in my mother's uterus, "'my coin purse heavy with ill wishes "'that have fined me in my teen years, "'paced the floor of a house half glass, "'its windows tacked straight up "'from the breathy bottom of a forest "'where a stream once sprung, "'but which is now paved over. "'He said, I never wanted children.' He's since bought a cemetery plot. Let it be known, there's room for me too, should I choose to be cremated. Urns fit neatly in corners.
0: Awesome. Oh my God, I it's love a little that long poem. Well, not for me. I like long poems. Amazing. So that that could be in your next book. That will be in my next book, yeah. yeah. Do you have a Do you have any working title for the book yet?
1: Well, I fancy, I always have a title for a book that's really bad, and so I might as well say it because then other people who have bad titles will feel comforted. But I I like the idea of calling it um, The Plan of the Flower, mm-hmm. but I think that will probably not be the title. That's more of an idea title because I want to have a bunch of flower poems in it. Nice.
0: What is the flower of your
1: tattoo? This is a rose. Uh-huh. Which I had tattooed on my wrist. It's actually a really bad tattoo. It's really bad. Um, never get your tattoo done by a stoned person. Um I would think about like suicide and death a lot. I don't I I would not I don't think of myself as suicidal, but I was kind of tired of that. So I was like, I'm just gonna put a tattoo on my wrist as like sort of a flower to like remember. Mm. And what about on your arm? An individual and I while drinking, got each other's names tattooed on our arms. Wow. And I'm sure that this individual has had his covered up and I had mine covered up and it took a very big tattoo to cover it up. But I would never have this big a tattoo if it were not for my um, original um, poor decision wow i think i feel like if that was the first thing we were talking about i would
0: spend the whole time talking about
1: the flowers that cover up the oh name yeah they're actually i mean person. obviously you can't just use any flowers yeah. right i mean if you're a poet i hate it when people ask me what they mean but i pick them all very carefully like yeah. um they all have like their own so sort of personal really like personal origins yeah. awesome and then this amazing tattoo artist eric rignall at, um, I forget what it's ink stop I think it's in like alphabet city uh-huh he's really good really good artist um all right well I think this has been totally totally amazing well I mean you know I love to talk about myself just kidding thanks <laughs> like no it's, this is um don't put it
0: This has been episode 58 with Kate Marvin, and I'm Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, myself, and Becca D. Gregorio. Many thanks to Daniel Schiffman, who is our advisor in all things, to Moses Zucker Gorin, for his performance and original composition of music that you hear in the credits. Thank you to Sarah Band Books and to W.W. Norton and to all the presses who have given us books for our raffles. Thank you to our patrons and thank you to you, listener. Happy new year, happy September, happy academic year. Take care and thank you for listening.